Well, hey, church, it is great to be with you. My name is Ethan Magnus, one of the pastors here. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. You look fantastic. Saw a few people dressed up today, looking good, looking sharp. So glad you're here with us to worship. If you're a guest with us today, you are in the right place. We're going to have a great day today. Uh, you know, Mother's Day is an interesting day. It's one of these that for, for some people is just the best day. It's the most fun day ever. And for some people, it's the hardest day ever. I was thinking about this sermon on Thursday as I was privileged uh, to help a family bury a father and a husband uh, who was also a son. And his mother was there sitting about three rows back. And I was just thinking... Uh, this is going to be a hard Mother's Day for her. Um, but that reality that Mother's Day is hard actually connects exactly with the reality we're talking about in this series. Um, this series is called It's Complicated. And we're getting that phrase, you know, from the brilliant Facebook strategists who recognize that when they let you fill out what your relationship status was, it wasn't enough to have single and married and engaged and everything else. You needed one at the bottom that said, it's complicated. I love that. Smartest thing I ever heard, you know, because it is complicated. Every relationship we have is complicated. Last week we talked about singleness. Uh, and I will say uh, several people mentioned to me that that was a really helpful sermon for them that they hadn't actually they hadn't actually examined before what the Bible says about singleness. So if you missed it last week, maybe you can um, check that out on YouTube or pick up the CD or go to Facebook and you can watch the the it's not the live stream anymore, but it gets saved after we live stream it there. And and we learned last week that singleness is complicated. Well, the same thing is true about motherhood. Motherhood is one of these universal relationships, you know? Everybody either has a mother or is a mother or both or something like that, right? So it's one, motherhood is one of these relationships that all of us experience. And you might think that if everybody experiences, we would have it figured out by now. But boy, we don't, do we? It's hard to be a mom. It's hard to have a mom. You know, it, the whole thing is complicated. We've got lots of kinds of mothers. We've got biological mothers and stepmothers and grandmothers and adoptive mothers and foster mothers. We've got the school teacher that you accidentally call mom in front of all your friends and it's super embarrassing, but it really is a testimony to how they kind of treat you like a mom. You've got people in your church that help raise you, the neighbor across the street who loves you and cares for you like a mom. And, and for every mother, for every kind of mother, there's all these complications and so much pressure. You know, you, you read about our articles that criticize the helicopter mom, and then you read articles that criticize the absentee parent, and as best you can tell, there's no room in between, right? You're one or the other, and you're wrong either way. You know, you've got moms struggling to figure out how do they celebrate their kids' success and walk through their kids' failure and make sure their kids know they love them the same, whether it's a day of success or a day of failure. You've got moms who struggle because they feel like they are needed all the time, even when they really would want a break. And you've got moms who struggle because they feel like they're never needed, even though they really would like to help it's complicated to be a mom 
Which is why I think one of the first things the Bible has to say about motherhood, it may be that if you know a verse of the Bible about motherhood, my guess is it's this one, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. I think that makes sense. A job that hard, that complicated, that hard to wrap your mind and life around, it makes sense that the Bible starts out by saying to us, honor your father, honor your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And of course, the Bible is filled with fantastic mother stories. I love the story of Moses' mother who defied the law and hid her own son from the authorities, and then when that method worked no longer, trusted her son into God's care, sneaking him into a little handmade boat and sending him down the river. I love the story of Moses' mother. I love the story of Jesus' mother who defied social expectation and common propriety to trust God enough to bear a son whose life would lead him to a cross and to suffering, and yet she stood faithfully by his side through that. Probably my favorite mother of the Bible is Rufus's mother. Do you all know Rufus's mother? You think for a second, that some of you think this is a setup to a joke, don't you? It's not. Rufus's mother, she's in the Bible. Romans chapter 16, my favorite mother in the whole Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 16, Paul in Romans chapter 16 is writing greetings to all kinds of people in Rome. He greets about 25 or 30 people in this text. Romans chapter 16, verse 13, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. I love everything about that text. I love the fact that his name is Rufus. I love the fact that Paul bears witness to the fact that motherhood is bigger than biology, right? This woman has been a mother to him. I love that he bears witness to the fact that in the church, if a church is working the way the church is supposed to be, you can end up blessed with lots and lots and lots of mothers. I love imagining what was it that Rufus's mom did for Paul? Like, you know, did he show up sick in the middle of one of his missionary journeys and Rufus's mom made him chicken noodle soup and forced him to stay in bed? I don't even know. But I love that text. Greet Rufus and his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. You know, another uh, great mom, and here, this mom, we actually know the mom's name is, uh, is the mother of Timothy. We learn a lot about the mother of Timothy. I don't know if you've ever read about the mother of Timothy. Uh, we first meet the mother of Timothy in Acts chapter 16. Uh, we don't uh, learn her name there. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul, he's traveling around. Paul came to the town of Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. First thing we learn about Timothy is that he was raised in a dual religion household. The, the fact that the, the father obviously could have been Greek and a believer, but the fact that the sentence is structured that way makes it pretty clear. Mom's a believer and dad isn't. But nevertheless, Timothy's mom was raising him 
to be a follower of Christ. So much so that when Paul shows up in Lystra, meets Timothy, raised by his believing mother, he says, Timothy, you're ready to go. You're ready to be a pastor. The only seminary he'd ever gone to was the seminary of his mother's home. And yet Paul says, that's it. You're coming with me. And off Timothy goes. We learn more about that relationship uh, from a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll just start at the very beginning so you'll see the, the context here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. This is just how Paul starts his letters. He's always a very formal writer. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded, now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. I love this acknowledgement uh, from Paul. The acknowledgement that what Timothy has as a pastor and leader in the church, and we, we think by the time 2 Timothy was written, uh, Timothy was leading the church in Ephesus, is what we think is going on here. What Timothy has as a pastor and leader, Paul just acknowledges straight up is something that has been given to him by God through other people. It's been given to him by his grandmother, by his mother, and Paul claims a little credit himself. And I love that reminder. Uh, Paul isn't done reminding Timothy of the legacy that he has from his mother and grandmother. Uh, same letter, 2 Timothy, but now in chapter 3, he's writing about the importance of Scripture in Timothy's life. And in the middle of that discussion, he says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, his mother and his grandmother, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Well, how could such a thing be possible? Well, only if his mother and his grandmother made it possible. What Paul is saying to Timothy is that Timothy is the keeper of a legacy. A legacy given to him by his mother and his grandmother. And I guess on the face of it, this doesn't surprise me. I think there's a sense in which probably all of us are in some way the keepers of a legacy that we were given by our mothers and grandmothers. 
As I look around the world and just make my way through it, I just notice it feels like moms are naturally fantastic legacy leavers. Bearers from one generation to the next of tradition and story. I asked around for some stories. Uh, somebody told me this. I love this one. Um, they, they said, whenever I was a girl and I used to visit my grandmother in Virginia, she would always make me take tissues to church. I remember making fun of her, thinking it was funny, but my mother did the same thing. I couldn't imagine why I would need tissues at church. Now, three generations later, I make my daughters take tissues to church. I love that story. I don't know if she ever figured out why or if she just does it because her grandmother did it. Somebody else wrote on this. I, I asked them, I wrote, wrote to a few people. I just said, tell me a story of a legacy that you are bearing and it was born to you. Somebody wrote in this one. I love this one. My grandparents raised my mom, sister, and five brothers on a farm. My grandmother came up with this recipe for a sweet custardy syrupy dish poured over biscuits. The dish didn't cost a lot to make, mostly ingredients from the farm, but it fed her large family. My mom made the dish for me. I make it for my two girls, and they will be able to make it for their children someday. I love that story. I bet a lot of us have a, have a food legacy that you could tell, right? Of a store, of a dish somebody made and they taught somebody and they taught somebody and they taught somebody and now you're making the dish or you're teaching somebody how to make it. This, this piece of legacy leaving and receiving, it, it's sort of a natural part of the rhythm of being a mom or having a mom, isn't it? Telling the story of how we used to do things and challenging people to continue the legacy on. Of course, I'll say as a side note, just to be clear, I know this work of legacy leaving and receiving, it isn't unique to moms. Dads take a legacy and leave a legacy. Aunts and uncles, friends and neighbors. In, in fact, this, this rhythm of receiving a legacy and passing on a legacy, it's meant to be one of the marks of the church, too. Not just the mark of moms and dads and aunts and uncles, not just the mark of biological families, it's meant to be one of the marks of our spiritual families. We, we use a line here uh, sometimes, we say we want to be a five-generational church. We want to be a church where people in all five of the living generations from five years old to 105 years old feel at home and welcome and alive and included. And part of the reason it's so important to be a not a one-generational church or a two-generational church, but a five-generational church is because of our responsibility as God's people to be a legacy-leaving people. That too, in case you were curious, we can find taught in this same letter to Timothy. The same letter in Paul, which Paul talks about the legacy Timothy received from his mother's, his mother and his grandmother. He also talks about Timothy's responsibility to leave a legacy. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, 
Paul writes to Timothy, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. Paul is saying, Timothy, it isn't enough for you to just do your ministry. It's not enough for you to just do your job. You must do your job in a way that will equip others to do their job, who will equip others to do their job, and leave a legacy as rich and full as the one left to you. Paul writes about Timothy, from your infancy you knew the scriptures. I love that text because there's no way he could have done that on his own. The only way that happens is if somebody else, and we know who they were, Lois and Eunice, if somebody else decided to make that true for him, decided to give him that legacy of faith, and now Paul is challenging Timothy to do for others what was done for him, to pass on a legacy into the lives of the generations to come. And this isn't some sort of rare thing that Timothy was challenged to do. In fact, you could go throughout the Bible from beginning to end and you'll see reminders of the importance of God's people being a legacy-leaving people. Uh, Here's just one more example from Joel chapter 1. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Well, tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Now in Joel's case, he's actually talking about a great punishment from God. And the message of Joel is don't forget how God has punished us so that in future generations we are humble and obedient to God. So the thing to be remembered in Joel's case is not the happiest of things, but it is an important thing to remember that our God is a just God who punishes those who rebel against him. But what I notice in Joel is Joel's insistence that we aren't meant to learn all these things on our own. We, in fact, are meant to pass them on generation after generation after generation. He starts by asking, has anything happened in your day or in the days of your ancestors? Assuming they know the stories of their ancestors. And I would just say, if you're here today and you think you're, you're, if you're, if you would still classify yourself as one of the young people in the church, you need to know God assumes that you are learning the stories of faith from those who have gone before you. He, Joel just assumes they know what happens before them because they listened and they asked. They received the legacy of faith of their ancestors. But then in the next sentence, he commands that the legacy you have received, you must now pass on. And again, not just to your children, but tell it to your children in such a way that they can tell their children, and they can tell their children, and they can tell the generation after them. The church, God's people, we are designed and we are commanded to leave a multi-generational legacy. Which means we always must be looking back and listening to those who have come before us. 
and we always must be accommodating and teaching those who come after us. One of the ways we do this here at FCC uh, is we, we, we're committed to partnering with families who want to leave a legacy. I don't know about you, but when I read Paul talk to Timothy about how Lois and Eunice taught him the scripture from his youth, about how Lois and Eunice gave a deposit of faith that is now coming to fruition in his life, man, I want to do that for my kids. I don't always feel like I make it. I don't always feel like I'm living up to it, but I want to do that for my kids. And I bet some of you do too. And one of the things I love about First Christian Church is how our children's ministry and our student ministry is ready to partner with parents to help you leave a multi-generational legacy of faith in your kids. And so I hope you're engaged in that. I hope your kids are in those ministries. I hope you're serving there. But, 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 but it, this isn't just, though, about how, how the church partners with families so they can leave a legacy. The church itself is meant to be a legacy-leaving place. We are so blessed to have such amazing volunteers who their kids are old and grown or maybe they don't even have kids and they are still showing up in our student ministry and our kids ministry, pouring into that legacy and someday somebody's going to say, I knew the scriptures from my infancy because of the person who held me in the nursery and sang Jesus loves me over me while they rocked my cradle so that I would know that truth at that early age. Or uh, the, 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 the deposit of faith has been placed firmly in me because of the person who led my middle school mission trip and taught me how to put others first and be a little less selfish and a little more focused on the needs of others. We as a church believe part of what it means to be a legacy-leaving church, to be a five-generation church, is that we need old people and young people serving together and old people and young people worshiping together. We need old people and young people committed to always looking back and receiving the legacy of faith from those who have gone before, but also always looking forward to share the legacy of faith with those who are coming after. And just to be clear, we know... It's complicated, okay? I, we're under no pretense that, having a, that, that for moms to leave a legacy, we don't think that's easy. For families to leave a legacy, we don't think that's easy. For churches to leave a legacy, we don't think that's easy. In fact, I would just say, you moms out there, maybe you hear talk about Lois and Eunice, and you hear talk about leaving a legacy, and you just want to say, but it's hard. And you're right, it is hard. And, and, and we can do all we can to leave a legacy. If, if someone chooses not to receive that, we can't control that. It's hard. I, I read about, you know, I just, I think about where it says, Timothy knew the Bible from his infancy. I'll just say, I find it very hard to build my home rhythm in a way that includes as much scripture as I would like. I, I'm just not doing as good a job on that as I wish I was. Um, it's part of why I'm so glad my kids are in youth group three times a week because I know they're being taught God's word there. But I, I also want it more in my home. I do. I wish I was more like Lois and Eunice. Leaving a legacy, whether it's in your home or it's in the church, one of the things that makes it so hard to leave a legacy, whether in the home or in the church, 
is it requires constant compromise and constant effort to understand one another. We laughed about those silly text message misunderstandings there earlier in the service, but, but let's be real, that kind of misunderstanding has real consequences, has real challenges for our legacy leaving. You know, I, I think about uh, the table. Uh, Betsy mentioned her mom loving to cook. Uh, one of the things I love about eating at Betsy's mom's house is how committed she is to leaving a legacy. And one of the ways she does that is by incorporating the foods of her childhood with the foods of my kids' childhood. Uh, my mother-in-law grew up in Taiwan, and so we often have a table. We're sitting right next to it, our grilled hot dogs and fried egg rolls and barbecued chicken and spicy tofu and old-fashioned East Tennessee soup beans and then a bowl of bitter melon, which if you're wondering why they call it bitter melon, it's because it's a melon and it tastes bitter. Why you keep eating it, I don't know, but that's what they call it. It's, it's a well-named food. I'm just saying that. Bitter melon is a well-named food. And as we got kids, her, her, the, the dishes just expanded. At first it was macaroni and cheese or peanut butter and jelly when they went through those phases. Now, I really, I'm not sure we ever eat a meal there where there isn't mashed potatoes and kimchi because those are my kids' two favorite foods. Over the years, I have watched her do the most amazing thing. I have watched her sacrifice some of her favorite foods to make sure she included the favorite foods of others. But I have also watched her teach us to like her favorite foods. And so far, really, other than bitter melon, I think I've learned to like all of her favorite foods. That is the complicated work of leaving a legacy, isn't it? You're always having to accommodate. The young have to always accommodate to those who are older to understand their world and understand what they like and understand their music. And the, the older always have to accommodate to the young to understand their world and understand their music and understand what they like. Legacy leaving is this challenging, difficult work of preferring one another in love, listening long and working hard in the church and in our homes. Legacy leaving is hard work. It's hard to connect across the generations. But even though it's hard, it is what we do. It's what our moms do, isn't it? Happy Mother's Day to moms and grandmoms and stepmoms and adopted moms and dads and aunts and uncles who are working to carry on and share legacies that span the generations and communicate them anew with a new generation so that they'll understand. And it's the work the church must do. It's the work we're going to do as a church as we stay committed to being a five-generational church for every generation from five to 105 because we have such an amazing legacy to leave. So I just want to say to all of you, moms or not, to all of you that are doing the work of receiving the legacy of generations before us, thank you for looking back and remembering and taking what is best and bringing it forward. 
and to all of you who are doing the work of leaving a legacy for the next generation. Thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for getting down in their lives and translating the great truths of Scripture into language they can understand. Maybe this afternoon you'll take a minute and you'll say thank you to somebody. Maybe it will be your mom or maybe not. But say thank you to somebody like Lois and Eunice who left a legacy of faith in your life. And maybe you'll also look around and you'll ask God, where would God have you leave a legacy for the next generation? Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you so much for moms, for my mother and grandmothers, who, like Lois and Eunice, were teaching me scripture from my infancy and left in my life a legacy of faith. I thank you for all the people here, moms and dads and aunts and uncles and friends and neighbors and Sunday school teachers and everything else who are doing that good work today, receiving the legacy of faith from those who have gone before and leaving a legacy for those who will come after us. Thank you for that good work. And now, God, may you bless us as a church so that that good work will abound in our midst and we will be a church that is truly and faithfully looking back to receive the legacy of your people and is truly and faithfully looking forward to pass it on to those who will follow you in the generations to come. This is our prayer, God. Make us those people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.